Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone. Today is January 30th, 2020. And yes, 2020 does have a kind of prophetic, possibly apocalyptic sound to it. For now, we'll go with prophetic. And I'm very happy to report that uh, my still uh, health-recovering colleague, Bill Padalo, is back with us. And I very much appreciate him gathering himself to be on the show. He's always a huge factor in getting at the kind of information that listeners have come to expect on this show, and I always appreciate him being on, and uh, as always, welcome, Bill. Thank you, Charles. It's uh, good to be back. It's been a tough month uh, with the flu and now uh, morphed into a head cold, but I think I'll get through this. (laughs) All right, excellent. So what we've got on tap uh, for today We're going to be talking about a couple of fundamentals that are going to be front and center here in 2020, and this is going to be information that's useful for both judicial foreclosure states like Florida and New York and non-judicial like California, typically Arizona. And what I'm discussing first topic is CSAs. Now, Bill is going to break down what's the kind of current issue there and how homeowners can get into using the failure for CSAs, the way they were basically both uh, developed, uh, tendered, signed, supposedly executed, back in the mortgage meltdown era and, you know, to some extent a few years after that. Bottom line, we're going to break down everything related to that. Then we're going to address the RICO angle. I think there's way too much RICO action from institutional and government players, frankly. Uh, Nevertheless, it's a useful tool. It can be a legitimate tool in litigation. And I think 2020 should be the time when we bring that forward into the foreclosure arena. Bill and I will be discussing that as well. And as always, uh, before we take off on those two topics, I am always happy to tell listeners that I am broadcasting live from Southern California. I typically 
I handle the show every other week. Neil will be back next week, and then we will alternate. Sometimes there are exceptions to that, but that's our approach. Uh, This show, as always, is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it's made possible because of donation because of donations from listeners like those who are listening right now. Uh, any amount you're able to donate is appreciated. You can donate directly by selecting the donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. Uh, so, Bill, go ahead and just uh, start right in on this CSA angle. I think you've really developed a good approach here that attorneys, investigators, various individuals on our side can start to put forward in 2020. So I'll give you the floor for that. Sure. Well, thank you. Um, Really what I want to talk about basically is that, uh, you know, when this whole foreclosure mess began, a lot of people wound up, especially in non-judicial settings, um, entering into confidential settlement agreements with the parties that were declaring the default and claiming that they own the debt and uh, the title to the property, so on and so forth, and found themselves <clears throat> executing these CSAs, uh, believing that uh, they were really surrendering and giving up any rights to the property and title and moving on and so on and so forth. So the point I want to make is I I think uh, it's time for a lot of folks to maybe go back and uh, dust off those confidential settlement agreements and then take a good hard look at what language is actually in these documents that were most often drafted by the attorneys for the banks and servicers who were always doing the the, – foreclosure actions and whatnot. So <clears throat> the reason being, and, and and I'm seeing so much more of this in a clear light, obviously on my own case that I've been dealing with over title and possession uh, to my property in, in, in Oregon, um, <clears throat> but it's really important to understand that, <clears throat> and I've said this for a long time, is that Title and and the debt is there. There are two separate things here: the enforcements of the deeds of trust and mortgages and foreclosure, claiming that a debt is owed and all that sort of thing. And and for a long time in judicial states and and even contesting and challenging in non-judicial states, chain of title or title has really been kind of somewhat ignored. Uh, and it's always come down to well, who's holding the note and the debt, so on and so forth. But what I want to point out is that. <clears throat> When you look at the language, and I've seen enough of these uh, settlement agreements, and they all seem very, very similar in nature, um, what you will not find in these documents, which is kind of surprising, but I guess a lot of people just never really paid close attention, but there's never any language that really specifically talks about Um, conveyance of title from one party to the other. What they tend to be is sort of a generic release or mutual release of claims against one another, saying, okay, we're the borrower or we're the servicer or whatever for this account, and we're having a dispute over the account. And 
in agreement for X amount of dollars, we are going to mutually release each other from all claims known and unknown that could have been brought up or raised uh, against our agents, heirs, everything. It's just very generic language. And what you won't see, which should have been obvious by the drafters of these settlement agreements, is you should have seen language that said specifically if they truly were the beneficiary, for example, of a deed of trust in a non-judicial setting, to say, listen, we're having a dispute, but we own this debt, we're the beneficiary, and we're, you know, um, we're going to enter in in this mutual release, and in exchange, part of the condition is going to be that you agree to not challenge title or convey title to uh, to us uh, in exchange so that we can move forward and sell the property, so on and so forth. It seems like a like logical language that would be included in in these agreements, but you'll never see that. You'll never see uh, any mention that that they uh, that they're a proper party to title um, or or anything like that. So, in a typical scenario, back you know, and and then it's still going on today, but in in the height of these rushes to ram all these foreclosures through after the economy crashed through 09, 10, 11, 12. Um, you're going to see in the, the, the typical scenario, used to be anyway, that uh, a non-judicial foreclosure would begin by the filing of a notice of default, and then the borrowers would try to put a stop to that sale by filing a some sort of a complaint, uh, and then it would get tussled up into litigation, and a list pendants would be filed, so on and so forth. So this would all lead then to um, a, a tremendous amount of settlement agreements in the CSA uh, arrangements. Now, <clears throat> once these CSAs are entered into, and many borrowers think that they've signed away all their rights and they have no interest any longer in the property, that's their belief, the next step is that the property is then sold uh, to a third party, usually by the servicer or whoever was um, threatening the foreclosure, and a special warranty deed is usually issued to that buyer that has typical language that sounds something like this. Seller makes no representations or warranties of any kind or nature whatsoever, whether expressed, implied, implied by law, or otherwise concerning the condition of the title of the property. And the only guarantee and warrant that's in this warranty, special warranty deeds, is that we're only saying from this moment in time uh, we're, we're, we're going to guarantee that there's no new liens that were put on by the, the conveyor of it from this point forward. So they're essentially not really insuring anything. Now, <clears throat> who knows behind the curtains? Who are the parties that know that that, title cannot be conveyed forward to any of these parties. Well, that's the title insurer who is going to issue the preliminary title reports, and oftentimes the real estate agents are going to be privy to uh, some of the title issues and things that are going on. But <clears throat> there's a there's an old maxim uh, of, of law. It's called Nemo dot quad non habet, and it's a basic property law that uh, or maxim that says one cannot give what one does not have and 
essentially what what's going on then at this point is after they get the settlement agreement signed and they pass this hot potato on with with no rights to convey title to the next party now the statute of limitations clock begins to tick and and, and this is their achilles heel and this is what i have to personally know that the title insurers uh on these things which are, are run and controlled many you know often by the largest banks and everybody on Wall Street are own and control these title companies. I've said this all along. They're aware and they know that this is a time bomb waiting to happen, is that when people wake up and start saying, look, um, and I want to take a step back, I, my general understanding, and maybe you can say something to this, Charles, but my general understanding, you want to check with a, your attorney if you're listening in whatever jurisdiction you're in, but... Uh, generally speaking, statute of limitations is usually around 10 years for people to come back and try to uh, challenge any interest in a property for, for certain reasons. So what they're hoping for is that that the uh, statute of limitations essentially runs and that these homeowners who entered into these CSAs have been lulled into uh, uh, complacency and thinking that they don't have any rights and then the statute of limitations runs and then they're in the clear and then they can get uh, a quiet title if they ever needed to or whatever they can move on and sell refinance and that sort of thing but this is a sore spot with uh, uh, with the title companies and they know and I, uh, I can uh, share with some personal experience they are very concerned about this and they are coming at uh, at me specifically with a vengeance uh, to um, try to teach me a lesson uh, intuitively to attack me uh, from exposing this uh, because they know darn well that if people start to uh, uh, challenge this and they look and they say, listen, I enter into a settlement agreement and the language of that settlement agreement in, all, in essence, is really saying it's a mutual release of all claims. Therefore, the party that I settled with um, is releasing me from any of the debt and the liens and the claims that they were threatening foreclosure with. It's kind of a two-way street. They released all claims against me. I released claims to not go after the party for wrongful foreclosure and all the shenanigans and things that they did improperly or illegally. And we basically call it a day, but there's no addressing of the title. There's no addressing of um, who's going to convey title moving forward to whom. And I think that's done intentionally because, again, they know that all they're trying to escape is liability for the wrongful foreclosure side of it. But they also know moving forward that you know they couldn't convey title, period. So... Now, if you were to challenge uh, in, in, in certain situations and come and say, maybe I've got rights to title and I'm going to look into that, now the exposure is going to uh, come and the liability is going to be targeted at any potential um, title insurance policy that's been granted to that next buyer by a title company who knew going into it, as they did in my case, that the sale didn't occur and that the title uh, the sale was illegal, that there was no authority or power or so on and so forth to even convey title or move forward. So this has tremendous um, 
exposure, the, the, the title companies have tremendous exposure here. And um, I think the day of reckoning is, is, uh, is coming when it comes to these title issues. Now, this kind of also plays into the next part of the, the show here, talking about the parties who are all involved in this RICO and conspiracy to uh, what is it, whatever you want to call it, launder the title, to uh, steal the, the, the properties and liquidate and, and pocket from the proceeds. There's an awful lot of hands into this pie. And there's an awful lot of hands uh, into this thing who have full knowledge that the uh, title is defective, that the parties seeking to foreclose and sell do not have title to convey, so on and so forth. And that's where um, I think this case that we're going to talk about, you're going to talk about next, has a lot to do with how to attack and frame this stuff to, to go after these parties who have um, uh, illegally harvested and, and laundered these titles. Uh, as always, really good analysis, Phil. Um, I will say regarding the CSA issue, uh, particularly the statute of limitations component, yes, 10 years is very common as a statute of limitations. For quiet title, that's really the cause of action we're talking about here. That's quiet title, whether it's being litigated from, directed as a cause of action by an institutional party against a homeowner in the judicial foreclosure states like Florida and Massachusetts, or whether you're using it as a a kind of uh, cudgel from plaintiff's side to the non-judicial end. And again, typically we're talking about <clears throat> California, Arizona, a number of other states, in the Ninth Circuit, there, California is complicated. We'll get into the details of that. In another show, there is some case law to support a 10-year statute of limitations for quieting title. There's even some to support a seven-year. Uh, nevertheless, generally speaking, the statute of limitations argument, whether it's in California or elsewhere, can be challenged through treating ongoing legal activity as essentially tending or vitiating the statute of limitations. So, you know, again, going back to legal 101, statute of limitations don't apply where there's an ongoing act which basically recreates the same legal claim. Uh, of course, that's complicated invariably when the institutional players are pursuing their foreclosures. They they certainly get the benefit of the doubt when they are advancing their cases in the judicial foreclosure cases or states, whereas non-judicial foreclosure homeowners in places like California I mean, when you're facing a new notice of default, one would think that that resets the clock. And even a new notice of trustee sale, which those are certainly a lot more common, you would think that would reset the clock related to the statute of limitations. Uh, that's not the way a lot of judicial findings are, are playing out in California. 
And on to Rico, uh, yes, that is, I think, a fundamental kind of front area, a leading edge area that we can use here, particularly in non-judicial foreclosure states. I think it's got potential traction, even as a potential counterclaim in judicial foreclosure states where there's enough of a basis for a counterclaim when there is suit uh, judicially by the institutional players against a homeowner. Again, in a place like New York, Massachusetts, Florida. Uh, bottom line there is RICO and kind of associated statutes, whether we're talking state or federal. And the the kind of associated principle is is to say that there's a conspiracy, there's a collusion. Uh, Neil broke this down well uh, on his blog with a case reference of Chiraca versus Miami, Hialeah Incorporated, Florida case from 78. Several fundamental principles here that you all go over are the first is that and this makes sense when you think about it, if you're going to find conspiracy and collusion in a given defendant's vulnerability, shall we say, legally, then, of course, to find that tort, you should have to prove out as a plaintiff that the individual is liable as an individual for the conduct. In other words, for that individual to have colluded, you would think, and the law presupposes, and it's built into the conspiracy law in some ways, that they be individually liable for the conduct at issue. However, I have to tell you one reason why there is so much overcharging in abusive legal process by government officials, by criminal uh, prosecutors, whether they're federal or state, throughout the uh, United States, there is a lot of abuse of conspiracy statutes. What's happening is rather than having to prove out the individual predicate violations in full or <coughs> crimes in full, depending on whether we're talking criminally or civilly, Rather than having to prove that out, what's happening is a lot of plaintiffs and prosecutors are using they are using uh, civil conspiracy as a workaround, as a shortcut, as a way to actually create even more liability and more damages, especially real world legal world damages, which hit the defendant even harder. And yet the individual claim against that person may be either very thin or close to non-existent. But because they're brought into a conspiracy with other players where the individual claim against that individual may be a lot stronger, all of a sudden the less culpable or possibly not culpable at all individual is wrapped into the conspiracy. A lot of that going on, I think it's despicable, frankly. Uh, nevertheless, this is the trend. This is the norm we have now. Uh, are homeowners able to possibly use RICO statutes? 
to reach liability for all the institutional players in so many of these loans, particularly in non-judicial foreclosure states like California? I think the short answer is yes. We don't know yet how this will play out. And usual disclaimer, I'm not giving anybody legal advice about filing a RICO case. I'm introducing the idea, if you're not familiar with it, I'm giving you food for thought. You need to consult with an attorney. You need to pursue uh, legal advice and proper legal arenas to follow up from this show. Short of what I'm saying is RICO and RICO-like statutes are a real tool. The big boys, the big girls all over the U.S. are using them big time. It's time homeowners would avail themselves of those options. And that's something that I think is going to be playing out here in 2020. Uh, Bill, what's your take on the on the RICO angle? And I know you have some personal, uh, you know, you may or may, may not want to talk about your own personal stuff, but I know you have some input on this regardless. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the civil conspiracy angle of it is I can clearly see, not only in my case, but a lot of cases that I investigate, I can clearly see and connect the dots to show all the parties that are uh, communicating with one another to uh, pull off the heist, so to speak. And I, and I, don't, I don't say that flippantly. I mean, we have, uh, you know, a massive Brooklyn Bridge problem here where – these homes, thousands, tens of thousands, millions, since the economy crashed, um, are being sold and paid for, uh, or, or being money's being paid to strangers to title to buy the Brooklyn Bridge. Okay, these parties don't have any rights to sell it. So, so I mean, if if you went out and bought the uh, Brooklyn Bridge from somebody, I wouldn't take the New York uh, Port Authority very long to come after you and and uh, say, wait a minute, uh, that you don't have any rights to do that. Well, homeowners being the Port Authority are, are potentially have a lot of rights to come back now and say, wait a minute here, uh, I can now connect these dots to show that all of this is phony, including these trustee sales. There is so much evidence to show that not only do these trustee sales not go down and they don't even occur and they're not even being called as they state they are, and that the cash consideration paid receipt of which is acknowledged under penalty of perjury in the trustee's deeds, that that money uh, is a complete farce. I've got the accounting records that show in cases where that money has never been applied to the account. It's completely a ruse. Um, All of this is phony and false. And so, uh, again, just circling back because we're, we're just about out of time here, is that <clears throat> what's very telling is that the confidential settlement agreements, and there's there's a lot of them out there, folks, um, and you, you're probably one who, who got into one. Take a hard look at that, and you're going to see the emperor has no clothes because if they truly were who they said they are, if they truly had the rights to do what they were doing, uh, that language written by counsel and attorneys would have been very crystal clear that they had the, that they were uh, going to require that title be a part of the bargain and that that was going to be an issue cleared up moving forward so that they could move and sell and do things properly. That was completely avoided. So uh, there's a reason for that. Where there's smoke, there's fire, right? Exactly. Uh, so I think, you know, parting thoughts on all this, 
the the bottom line is the the use of conspiracy collusion, RICO like causes of action. This is a relatively new area. I think in some jurisdictions it's virtually a brand new area. Uh, but there's no question that the field, the actual analytical field of lender, servicer, sales trustee behavior, they are all coordinating and colluding. Uh, again, I'm using that term in a sort of colloquial sense. But the behavior is so coordinated and so close, and it, it is conspiratorial in the sense that it's clearly directed at advancing the harm and using the fraudulent title. So in cases where there's the underlying fraudulent conduct, and of course, to some extent, that's going to have to be made out of a lawsuit. Uh, I think collusion can be made out as a cause of action, and the damages for that are, in reality, very substantial. And that's uh, where I think uh, a lot of homeowners should be going in the coming days, weeks, and months. We will be back next week, and I'll be with Bill again shortly. Uh, We will see you next time. Thanks, Charles. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.